It's good to be together. Why don't you turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, that's where we're going to head today. We're going to jump right into it. Um, when Josh started this series, uh, I was actually in Florida going to school. I know I suffered in January being in Florida. And uh, he asked me which passage I, I felt like I needed to go into, and this one came to mind. So I don't think a conversation about loving one another is complete without talking about Jesus' teaching on loving our enemies, actually. So that's where we're going to head today. So why don't you stand? Uh, I'll give you a little bit of context for where we are, and then we'll read this passage together. Jesus is sitting on, on the mountain and teaching a crowd of people what it means to be citizens of the kingdom of heaven. One of the tools that he uses to do this is this repetitive contrast. And in the chapter, this pattern goes like this. You have heard it said, and then he says something, pointing to the past, referring to teachings of the past, whether they're from Jewish tradition or from the Old Testament. And then he says, but I say to you, in all of his authority uh, as the king, he says, but I say to you, fleshing out what it means to be citizens of the kingdom and the Messiah. And so our passage today starts at uh, verse 43. I'm reading from the New Revised Standard Version. Just so you, know. you have heard that it was said, you should love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be children of your Father in heaven. For he makes his son to rise on the evil and the good. He sends rain on evil, sorry, on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers and sisters, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Be perfect. Therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. These are the words of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can take a seat. You have heard that it was said, you should love, uh, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. We can't go much further without defining a few terms here. When we think of neighbors, we think of people who live in geographical proximity to us. I know the Houstons are my next-door neighbor, and that the Wolvertons are my basement neighbor. We don't have anybody living above us right now, but some of you who live in those situations have literal neighbors in geographical proximity to where you live. But when Jesus, Jesus hears, um, we're listening to his teaching, it's perhaps better uh, for us to think about neighbors as those within the body of faith, within the people of Israel. We all know the tendencies that humans have to uh, make divisions and partitions between different groups. And so the insiders in this situation, the neighbors, would have likely been those within uh, ethnic Israel or those who had converted to Judaism. Uh, the antagonistic outsiders in this group uh, would have been, just like we just read, their enemies. Enemies who are actively opposed. So we're not talking about neutral parties here. So we're literally looking at neighbors and enemies. You know, out here on the prairies, the concept of enemies might be a little strange. We don't exactly live in a world where this uh, hits us every single day in really tangible ways. I found this definition that Laura's going to put on the screen from dictionary.com actually quite good. So I thought, why not? Let's, <laughs> so it'll give us a little bit of context. An enemy is a person who feels hatred for, 
fosters harmful designs against or engages in antagonistic activities against another, an adversary or opponent. I'm going to read that one more time. An enemy is a person who feels hatred for, fosters harmful designs against, or engages in antagonistic activities against another, an adversary or an opponent. Let's keep this kind of definition of an enemy in our minds as we continue through the passage. You have heard it said, Jesus says, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now the first half of this saying might be incredibly familiar to you. It comes from Leviticus 19, love your neighbors, right? We've heard this in various places. But did you know that the second half, hate your enemies, is not actually found in the Old Testament? It's not there. So what is Jesus saying here? What is he doing? You've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Well, most commentators are going to suggest that this is a common interpretation of what it means to love your enemy, that you partition people off and you're going to hate those who are outside of that beloved group in some way. And so Jesus banks on this common definition, but then turns it on its head. And he says, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. This reference to those who persecute you highlights for us what his definition of, of enemies, the definition of enemies that he has in mind, right? They were talking about an antagonistic and active opposition to God's people, okay? And to the work that Jesus was doing. We're not talking about tolerance and dislike in this sense. A little bit of a side note, uh, earlier in Matthew 5, Jesus makes it quite clear that his people should actually expect persecution. It shouldn't be a surprise in any way, shape, or form. And so in verse 10, he actually offers a blessing to his people. He says, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people revile you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. As heirs of the kingdom, we should expect persecution to come, and not just in the form of physical harm. In fact, the examples that Jesus uses are quite social, actually. Uh, people will revile you, will speak badly of you, and speak lies on account of your faith in Jesus. And actually, Peter's, the first letter of Peter speaks to this as well and calls for a life of integrity among God's people that uh, exposes these things as lies. When the kingdom of heaven breaks into the kingdom of darkness, we should expect a response. When the kingdom of heaven breaks into the kingdom of darkness, we should expect a response uh, from everyone, <laughs> friend or foe. Praise from God's people and opposition from those who are actively opposed to that kingdom. We should expect a response because what it does is not only reveal the Father, but it also reveals the Father's children. Does that make sense? It also reveals the Father's children. Parent-child connections are things that we can notice not only through genetics, but through habits, right? Habits and characteristics. For me, I, I know that my mom and I share a very similar sense of humor and creativity, but my cleaning habits are entirely from my dad. Bar none. 
And I'm sure the parents in the room, and actually the children in the room, can probably think of things that they have inherited from their parents, whether those things are good or bad. Uh, they still somehow mark us as family. My siblings and I live all across the country, all in different provinces, but when we're together, it's quite obvious that we're siblings. Um, somehow I made it through two years, three years here in Karenport without people knowing that my sister had been working here for quite a long time. We have different last names now, so maybe that's what got it. But, you know, when you are with your siblings, you know there's this different kind of bond. When you're with your parents, whether we like it or not, there are habits. And so Jesus says, uh, when he says the following verse, um, wow, just lost my train of thought. Give me a sec here. So when Jesus follows his command to love his enemies and pray for those who persecute you with these words, so that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He's highlighting this familial connection, right? These, these characteristics that ought to be shared between the Father in heaven and his children here on earth. How we love others reveals the love of the one who loved us first. Let me say that again. How we love others reveals the love of the one who loved us first. And how does he love this Father in heaven? For he makes the sun rise on the evil and the good, it says in verse 45. And he sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Our God, in his infinite mercy, provides everything necessary for life, not only for his children, for those who declare that he is Lord, but also for those who are extremely opposed to his very existence, his rule, and his reign. Were the sun not enough? Were the rain and the snow not enough? Were the food that we eat not enough? The very breath in our lungs would be. And it is that breath that Jesus pours out on the righteous and the unrighteous. This is the impartial love of our God. I think we often forget. I know I do. I forget that the very air that I breathe is a gift of mercy and love. And our love needs to reflect that kind of love. Because it, what, it's what it means to be his children. I love these next two verses. We're going to put them up on the screen. In verse 46 and 47, I feel like Jesus gets just a little bit sassy. I think he can do that, right? He, we always have a tendency to read, like, Jesus' words as very monotone and kind of, you know, somewhat really, really steady, but there's a way in which he constructs this that I can't just help but think that he is trying to get something across that might need just a little bit of attitude. He says, for if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers and sisters, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? What sets you apart when you love only those who love you from the rest of the world? What makes you my children? 
You know, the love that the world teaches us, the love that sin would love to foster, the enemy would love to foster within us, is a transactional love. It's a love that is only given when it is returned. It's a love that keeps our heads down and our hearts closed to those who desperately need the revelation of Jesus. Keeps us closed off to our enemies. And I have to admit, when I think about that, I'm pretty convicted. (laughs) The Lord commands us to love one another. We've been talking about that for weeks, and it seems pretty obvious. Love one another. This makes sense. It's, it's easy to love one another, at least it seems to be easy, when everybody's getting the same command. Because then, loving one another is an assumption. I assume, of course, I love my brothers and sisters. But the love that Jesus is calling for here isn't an assumption, it's an action. <laughs> Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Yes, within the body, we are called to bolster each other to this higher standard of loving one another and loving our enemies. And we should. And yet, I'm guessing I'm not alone that we still feel this temptation whenever somebody struggles to critique and and condemn. It's a very limited picture of love within the body. It's a you scratch my back and I'll scratch yours kind of love that doesn't fit in God's economy and what Jesus is calling for here. It doesn't reflect his character. One moment we're being loving and kind to someone and then we turn and five minutes later we're with a group of people teasing and making fun of that exact same person and emotionally isolating them from the body that's supposed to be their support. Supposed to be loving them. We assume the love and skip the action. And if we struggle to love one another, how much more challenging to pray for those who don't know our Lord, to pray for those who are reviling and speaking falsely against you and I. Loving one another on the ground in practical ways is sometimes hard enough for us within the body of Christ. But loving our enemies? Seems impossible. And yet, it's exactly what Jesus did. Hanging on a cross, gasping for air and aching from pain, He offered up a prayer for the very people who were taking his life. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Even in his death, Jesus modeled for us this kind of love. And in his life and sending of his spirit, he gives us the anointing to love like he did. And does and will forever love. And here's something that should perhaps make us pause even more. Our love is a constant witness, for better or worse, to our belief in the power of Jesus' death and resurrection. 
particularly when we think about loving our enemies. How would our life together and our mission for the kingdom be radically changed if we actively and sacrificially loved and prayed for our enemies? That's our question this morning, the question that I put to you. Probably one of the most obvious examples of this comes from Luke 10, where we read of the Good Samaritan, somebody actually, the outsider who had pity and showed great mercy. And Jesus told this story to answer the question, who is my neighbor? Who is the one I should be loving? And instead he, he flips it on his head and says, this is the kind of mercy that the Father shows. to those who are trapped and beaten down and broken. And I think we all know people who in the trap of sin fight back antagonistically against God's people. These are the ones we are called to love. And I think this is why this passage concludes with an exhortation to be perfect, as our Heavenly Father is perfect. Though many other things, many other teachings of Jesus are, are summed up in these words, we cannot deny that perfect love, the perfect love of God is to be a defining attribute of his people and his kingdom. Our love will never be perfect. It will never be complete until it reflects the spirit-empowered love of our Messiah. Our Messiah, who, while we were still sinners, gave his life for us, for the righteous and the unrighteous. Love for enemies in action. The most blatant action. The action that we center our lives upon. It's the heart of the gospel that we would love our enemies if we're loving like Jesus. Because, just in case you forgot, the Apostle Paul was once a guy named Saul, an enemy of the church. He says so himself, an enemy of the church and a persecutor of God's people who gave oversight to the death of Stephen. Stephen, who at the time of his death cried out in prayer, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And so we also have the example of Stephen praying for those who persecuted him. And we all know the story. It wasn't long after this that Saul met Jesus on the road to Damascus. And at the revelation of Jesus, his life was transformed no longer an enemy, no longer a persecutor of the church, but now one of the greatest servants of Christ. And yet he would never say so. You know, when I first came to Briarcrest for seminary, I had been studying, believe it or not, uh, genocide studies for a whole year in my undergrad. Uh, getting into the minds and, and thoughts and habits of 
of people who cause great violence. And it changed me. And it changed me because there was something in the middle of that space that God did in my heart that opened up this deep well of compassion for those who didn't know this gospel and for those who are still trapped in the twisted lies of sin that said that this was okay, that, this, that turned truth into lies and lies into truth. When I think about Paul, Paul is a perfect example of this, of the redemption of God. When I came here, I had a lot of moments where uh, somebody would exemplify the most evil person in the world that they could think of or in human history and essentially describe them in such a way that they were beyond redemption. But Paul's story tells us that they're not. That the enemies of the church are not beyond the grace of God. At any point in time. And so I need to ask you a question. I have two questions for you this morning, actually. First, who are the enemies in your life or in the life of God's people that come to mind for you? Who are the souls in your life? Who is that? Whose words and actions have cut you so deep that you can't even imagine that they too were built in the image of God? It's a hard question. Who is your soul? Secondly, what would it take? What would it take for you to love them like Jesus did? What would it take for you to pray for them rather than just about them? I feel this tendency all the time to pray about a situation rather than praying for people. But this is what Jesus calls for here. Pray for those who persecute you. Not about them as if it's some clinical exercise. But for them, for their hearts and their minds, that they would be renewed after the love of Jesus. And I'm going to be really direct with you. Whatever it is that just came to mind that it would take directly correlates to what you think about the love and the power of Jesus on the cross. It's not about denying the depth of pain. It's not about denying the pain that is caused of us. It's actually about expanding and exalting the love of Jesus and the power that he has to heal and to renew and to rescue sinners from darkness our very enemies. And that power, brothers and sisters, is at work in us through the Spirit. Indeed, if we proclaim that Jesus is Lord and that God raised him from the dead and broke those chains. And this, my friends, is why we're coming to the table this morning. We need to remember and we need to digest the truth about that love. And if we are in Christ, 
We abide in that love. We live in that love. And so Jesus' command to love your enemies has to be a part of it. We have to be firmly planted in that love. We need to view the world around us with those eyes, our friends and our foes. And we are commanded to be filled with that love to overflowing, especially to those who are trapped in sin and death, those who desperately need the rescue of Jesus, a family member, a friend, or an old friend, a world leader who seems to be systematically targeting God's people, all of these people are not beyond the rescue of Jesus, the transformation that his love alone accomplished for us and can accomplish. Friends, I know it's not easy. I'm not saying it's easy, but it's what we are commanded to do. And it's the blessing and privilege that we have as the children of God, that he fills us with his spirit and empowers us to pray, even for those who hate us. It's the thing that sets us apart as his people. I don't want to rush you this morning. I know that there's a lot to think about. Some of you may have different things spinning around in your head, but it is my prayer in the name of Jesus that what is spinning there is of his will rather than the distraction of the enemy who would tell you this isn't something you need to be doing. I pray that God would give you clarity to see what this looks like in your daily life. Something that needs to change, something that needs to be introduced, something needs to happen, a phone call you need to walk out into the foyer and make right now. And so before we go to the table, I want to invite you into a time of prayer. Reflection, confession, whatever it may look like, I trust that the Spirit will lead you. You may have someone in your mind right now that you need to forgive. Not by your own strength, but by the will and strength of God. You may have someone that you really need to pray for. Take the time and do that. You may need the support of a neighbor, somebody who's sitting beside you. Be open to one another, tap one another on the knee, and simply pray together. We love to pray together. I don't know if you noticed that. It's one of my favorite things to watch this group of people break off into small groups and pray together. It's a powerful thing. It's not about one and done. Just pray for your enemies today and then tomorrow you can get back to everything else. This should be an active practice for us. Corporately and individually. And so, before you come to the table, we're going to just put a little bit of music on, just so we don't have that awkward quiet that some people get uncomfortable with. <laughs> we'll put a little bit of music on, and I invite you into this space of prayer. You may find that you're sitting there and you need prayer in this space, or others to walk with you. Some of our leaders are actually going to be at the back today. We're going to have four prayer teams. There are pl there's plenty of space. And they're going to be at, at the crosshairs of these aisles. There's going to be four different teams. 
They should be people that you recognize. And if you don't, they're happy to welcome you into that space. They're there to pray, pray with you. If you need the support of the body, they're there to pray for you. If there's something that you're working through, they're there to discern with you. These brothers and sisters, be open to what God wants to do in this space. Don't push him out. It's a hard space, but we are not alone because of the spirit that binds us together in this work. And so, after this time of prayer, when you've entered into prayer, when you feel ready, I'm going to invite you forward to the table of the Lord. As you walk forward, I invite you to come two by two somehow. Whether it's with the person behind you or the person beside you, whether it's a family member or a complete stranger, I invite you to the table of the Lord. And as you reach the front of the table, to take the bread and to offer it to the person beside you with these words, his body broken for you. And then to take the cup and do the same. Offer it to the person beside you. His blood shed for you. And just in case you forgot, there's two ways you can remember this. It's actually engraved on the front of our tables. We were prepared. It's engraved on the front of the tables, but it is also written on a piece of paper up top. Let me invite you into a time of prayer. Let me invite you to the table of the Lord where we remember this generous, merciful love of God. Amen.